Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. Yeah, I guess my hope is that the dictionary and the grammar, the language knowledge book, becomes a, I guess, a foundation for a sustained community language revitalization effort, where eventually we're looking at a situation where our language is once again spoken on a daily basis uh, in a very kind of conversational context, that it is utilised in the revival of other traditional practices. Literature, language and cultural revitalisation. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Australia's First Nations languages have traditionally been orally based, passed down from one generation to the next. But the system was violently disrupted following early colonisation and the ensuing frontier wars. Along the east coast of the continent, hundreds of communities were subjected to assimilation policies, a process which saw children removed from their families, denied their cultural ties and heritage. But in recent years, Aboriginal elders, scholars and historians have undertaken the arduous task of revitalising language. And tonight we celebrate two remarkable authors undertaking that process through the use of contemporary literature. Callum Clayton Dixon is a linguist and historian and a founding member of the Anawan Language Revival Program. He is currently undertaking his doctoral studies on decolonising the Anawan language. He is also the author of Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience through the first 40 years of the colonial apocalypse. Callum, thanks for being with us tonight and welcome back to Speaking Out. I'm going to... Last time you were with us, we were talking about your book, Surviving New England. What has been the response to it since then? The response has been really positive. We've gotten rid of and distributed well over one and a half thousand copies of the book, mostly in the local area in New England and especially in the Armidale area. And we've had a lot of positive feedback from members of the local community, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, about the book and, I guess, opening people's eyes as to what the nature of relations between Aboriginal people and the squatocracy and the colonists during those early decades of the colonial occupation here on the tableland, the nature of frontier conflict, what happened in terms of the decline in numbers of the Aboriginal population and what caused that, uh, all those sorts of things. And I think it's working towards opening up another conversation about where we go from here in terms of potentially frontier war memorials and conversations hopefully about access to country that's been locked up by pastoralism for decades and decades, if not well over a century, things like that, and even conversations about reparations. Often when the sorts of histories that you've written about in your book are spoken about, there is, as you say, that can change a conversation, but there's often pushback as well. Is there a growing acceptance of the history in the local area that you've seen, or has there also been a little bit of resistance to the stories that you're trying to tell? I actually haven't come across any sort of negative comments, at least not that I've been told of or heard in person or anything like that. But that's not to say that there isn't negative things being said behind closed doors. But 
surprisingly, people who are belong to old New England pastoral families or people who are farmers in more kind of contemporary times have been very open to the content of the book and I guess wanting to learn more about local Aboriginal history and culture and a few of my cousins who've been out doing survey work on pastoral properties in the area have said that the farmers that they've come across and interacted with in the area have been really, really interested in, in learning more about local Aboriginal history and the history of what went on on those big old pastoral runs. It's great to see that kind of engagement with history and especially coming from your work. Your current project, a lot of your focus now is on rebuilding your own language. From your perspective, why is language regeneration so important? Well, I think I started out thinking about language revitalisation as a bit of a kind of like a portal or a window into the revitalisation of other aspects of culture and traditional practice. Like it's not just about the language and the words itself. It's about how that gives us a window into traditional Aboriginal worldviews and principles and practices and how it can be re-embedded and reintegrated into other practices that have been revived on our country here, uh, such as song and dance, weaving, carving, any of those sorts of things. So it's not just something that exists in isolation. It's kind of like a, a glue or a web that can connect with and help connect with these other aspects of culture and traditional practice that are being revived as well. From the work that you're doing, what transformations have you seen as people and communities reconnect with their language? Well, back in October, November 2018, the Animal Language Rubble Program held our first ever community language classes, and that saw a group of about 20 people, uh, members of the local Aboriginal community, attend classes over four weeks, four Sundays, uh, a couple of hours each time, and people of all age groups from five-year-olds all the way to people in their 70s and 80s were able to engage in this language learning or relearning process. And it was really amazing because after just two or three classes, we had some of the kids who were, I think, only about eight. And there was, there was two, there was one girl, one boy, one who was eight and one was 11, get up and teach the first week's worth of content to people who were coming in a bit later on in the along the track and that included teaching their great uncle and things like that and watching that kind of process of young people taking on language relearning in a really really prideful way and in a way that they were willing to step up and be a part of that process in a really really involved active way uh, listening to you speak about that experience it's really clear why the process of language regeneration is important and important to a community. But what drew you to the project of rebuilding the dictionary? I guess what drew me to language revitalisation in the first place was, I think, when I used to attend rallies in Brisbane and a couple of my mates would get up and introduce themselves in Gamilaroi. And I thought, oh, I want to be able to do that one day. And I think that was one of the early kind of things that set me on a path to becoming really interested and involved in, in language. And then I, I think it was back in 2014 that I ordered from IATSIS one of the only surviving audio recordings of our language. And that, I think, began my journey into archival language reclamation and utilising records in the colonial archive that had been made by linguists and anthropologists and squatters who had remembered words when they were growing up on stations back in the 1840s and 1850s here in New England and utilising those records to breathe new life into a, a language that had been 
dormant from the 1950s or prior. So tell us about the process then that you're going through in terms of trying to collate all of the material for a dictionary. It seems like an overwhelming process to go through. So what are the steps? How, how do you actually approach something so large? Well, I guess the first stage was to track down all of the available archival records, including both published and unpublished uh, source materials, such as the field notes of R.H. Matthews or the field notes of anthropologist A.R. Radcliffe-Brown, and then pulling all of, all of those materials together that have been collected from places like IATSIS, the National Library of Australia, University of Sydney Archives, the Archives and Library here at the University of New England, and other sorts of repositories around New South Wales and ACT. And then pulling all of those records together, transcribing them all into Word documents, and then compiling all of those into a kind of lexical database. And then from there, working on trying to analyse and get the most out of the orthographies, the spelling systems utilised by each of the recorders, because there's only two or three of the recorders, such as a German linguist, Gerhard Laves in 1929, who recorded some Manawan language, A.R. Radcliffe-Brown and Christopher Court in 1963, and then Bill Hodnot, who recorded a few Manawan words in the 60s as well. They were the only ones who actually used the International Phonetic Alphabet or a variation of it to record the language. Whereas R.H. Matthews, F.J. Buchanan, who grew up on Rimbanda Station and picked up language there, people like them and William Gardner and others, all use completely different ways of representing the sounds of our language. So it's really become a matter of trying to figure out exactly what types of sounds they were using. And so that's involved a process and continues to involve a process of looking at the work of other linguists who worked on neighbouring languages or other New South Wales Aboriginal languages to see what they've said about, oh, when R.H. Matthews uses this particular letter or this particular pair of letters, then he's trying to represent this particular sound there. So it's quite a detective kind of game or detective kind of work involved in trying to really get the most out of and most accurately reclaim the words out of the archive in the most accurate way possible so we're not butchering the unique sounds of our language. That sounds like such a complex, intricate process. But I was also interested that you said earlier on that where some of the sources of those words came from and they weren't just linguists but other people who were writing down words that they were hearing, Europeans hearing those words and recording them. And I was wondering from your perspective in doing this work, what sort of process do you do to make sure that what they're thinking they're understanding in terms of hearing language is actually the right interpretation of the words they're hearing? Well, in, in our case, because Anerwin and the other dialects of our language have been so poorly recorded, we have really very few records to rely on. So in, in other cases with languages like Gumbangir on the coast or Gimilaroi out west, you've got a far greater body of language data to work with in terms of comparing what different recorders heard and how they chose to represent it. Whereas with ours, you do get that in some cases. For instance, I was just looking yesterday at the word that had been recorded for moon and it had been recorded by three different people, R.H. Matthews, um, this doctor who was living in Glen Innes, John McPherson and F.J. Buchanan, the squatter on Rimbanda Station. And they'd all recorded it 
slightly different, but you could tell that they were all recording the same word. But R.H. Matthews seemed to have picked up something that the other two didn't because he'd had experience with recording quite a number of Aboriginal languages. I think he recorded something like 53 different Aboriginal languages across Southeast Australia. So he noticed this other kind of sound that was in there, this retroflex consonant, whereas the other two didn't. And I'm thinking that's because they didn't uh, have nearly as much experience with Aboriginal languages as Matthews did. So I guess it's like quite a an in-depth investigative process of trying to look really intricately at all these different kind of orthographic spelling conventions that each of the recorders have used and trying to get the most out of them. Is there a connection between the process of regeneration of language, of the community coming together and going through the process of learning and and sharing their collective knowledge of the language with the process of truth-telling? So the book Surviving New England actually came out of, I guess, the language research because We were constantly being asked by people, oh, well, why do you guys only have a few hundred words recorded? Why haven't you had speakers for decades and decades? Whereas there's been speakers up until much more recently or still today of languages like Goombanga and Gamilaroi and and other neighbouring languages. Why is it that your language seems to have, quote unquote, died out much earlier? So I started looking into that and what came out of that research, which ended up producing Surviving New England, was that there were a number of factors, including the absolute flooding of the tableland with livestock and colonists, which set about a process of forcing Aboriginal people into much closer and more regular contact with English-speaking colonists than in other areas. So with 500,000 sheep up on the tableland within just 10 years of the colonial occupation beginning. You have the depletion of native food resources, forcing Aboriginal people into a position of having to either go and kill livestock, which then brings the wrath of the vigilante colonists and border police, etc., or going on to stations and working for rations, therefore coming into much more regular contact with white people who refuse to learn the local language. So the process of language decline or our language being forced into dormancy really began back during that early period of the the colonial occupation. And so looking at those factors such as the influx of livestock and colonists into a region during those early years, whereas people often think that language was forced into dormancy or forced into sleep as a result of the protection era and the welfare board era where language was essentially banned. But that process really began decades and decades earlier and the protection era and the welfare board era really was what kind of finished off the language and sent it into that kind of final stage of dormancy. But that process began long, long before that. Callum, I asked you earlier about what the impact of the regeneration has been on community members and the community itself. I just finally this evening, in doing this project and going through all of the intricate work that's involved in it, what do you hope the legacy of the work will be? Yeah, I guess my hope is that the dictionary and the grammar, the language knowledge book, becomes a, I guess, a foundation for a sustained community language revitalization effort where eventually we're looking at a situation where our language is once again spoken on a daily basis uh, in a very kind of conversational context, that it is utilised in the revival of other traditional practices such as weaving and carving and song and dance and, and all that sort of thing, and that eventually that 
language uh, knowledge book, that dictionary and grammar, becomes something that just sits on a bookshelf gathering dust while our language sustains itself as something that's a living, breathing part of our community's cultural fabric. Callum, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing this important work with us and really giving us some great insights into the importance of language revitalisation for a community and also the really intricate work involved in doing that. No worries, thank you. Anawan man Callum Clayton Dixon is a linguist and historian and a founding member of the Anawan Language Revival Program and he is the author of Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience through the first 40 years of the colonial apocalypse. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt, and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. One of the country's most prolific First Nations writers, Anita Heiss, has in recent years been on a very personal journey, immersing herself in the traditional language and traditions of the Wiradjuri Nation. Coming up, she reveals how the process fostered a greater connection to her cultural heritage and country and influenced the development of her latest book, Bila Yara Dungalungdere. But right now, let's have some music. This next track is by Christine Arnu and features the vocals of her sister Helen Arnu and Andrew Warboys. It's a very intimate version of Kulba Yade and was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in 2013. Kulbaya daya gariya ya kul ba kulbaya dai kulbaya dai kulbaya dai Oh, 
was Christine Arnu with the track Kulba Yade featuring the vocals of Helen Arnu and Andrew Warboys. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Anita Heiss is an award-winning author, social justice advocate and an ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Her books include fiction and non-fiction titles including Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms, Titters, Am I Black Enough for You, I'm Not Racist But and Growing Up Aboriginal. One of Australia's leading writers, she's long been at the vanguard of the renaissance of First Nations writing and has been the pioneer of First Nations women's commercial fiction with titles such as Not Finding Mr Right, Avoiding Mr Right, Manhattan Dreaming and Paris Dreaming. Her new book, Bira Yarradunga Langdare, may be her most ambitious yet. It tells the story of Wagadine in the aftermath of a cataclysmic flood in 1852 and her experiences working as a domestic in the Bradley household, particularly with Louisa. The title is in Anita's traditional Wiradjuri language. Anita, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me, or I should say my language, Mandangu. Thank you. Now, I want to get into this amazing book you've written, but I thought just to get us started, I might ask how you became a writer. Wow. Yes. So as we get older, you have to think so far back. Um, I, look, I need I need your listeners to know I never imagined that one day I'd be talking to you about having, you know, writing novels and so forth because I didn't read as a child. I was a pen pal. I liked to write stories through letters and so forth. But I was inspired to write my first book after I was at university, UNSW, doing my undergraduate degree on the 1967 referendum and having to read all my course outlines were basically non-Indigenous people in Australian history writing about Aboriginal Australia. And so I got one book off the shelf. I think it was 1990 or 1901 that was uniquely titled Australian Aborigines and it was written by someone who in Great Britain, it was based on letters that somebody in New South Wales would write to them, today we did this with the natives and today we did that with the natives, you know, that very documentary style gaze and lens and voice. And one day five Aboriginal men took this fella hunting and they left him for a short period of time and only four returned. So he assumed they ate the fifth one and writes this letter back to Britain saying the natives are cannibals because five went away and four came back. So obviously they ate the fifth one. And I was horrified. I thought this is written now as a history book and here's this one moment in time where someone's perceived cannibalism in Aboriginal culture as something which I had never heard of before and didn't hear of again until Pauline Hanson had a voice, and that's another conversation. And I realised at that moment in time that, one, that history is completely subjective in the way it is recorded, 
and that uh, obviously the colonising nations around the world have recorded history and it's very different to the way in which colonised peoples remember and record history. So I realised that. And I also realised that I had a responsibility as, you know, the first person in my family to go to university and learn the skills for researching and writing to do something about that. So I wrote my first book, Sacred Cows, which was really just a send-up of Australian culture and skippy and veggie and so forth, not knowing back then that I would write more. My first writing job was actually at Streetwise Comics between 1992 and 94. I wasn't very good at that, Larissa, because in comics there's not very many words and I <laughs> and I you know you've known me for a long time I'm not short of a word so I wasn't very good at the comic script writing but through doing that and learning about different ways of telling stories and different ways of getting important information out so those comics were for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with low literacy skills to teach them about opportunities through education and training but also their legal rights and so forth in ways that they might not pick up a brochure or a book or even a phone book but they'll read a comic so I guess that's you know how I started. Now, I've known you for a very long time and you've always had a very strong sense of who you are and I wonder if you could share with us who or what shaped your worldview as a Wiradjuri woman? I have to say hands down, it's, you know, from childhood till today, it's obviously my mum with the support of my father because interestingly people would say, strangers even would say, how can you be an Aborigine if your father's Austrian? And throughout my entire life I always recognised that the only person who never asked me that was my father because, you know, love was unconditional and he loved my mum unconditionally. And they both, though from completely different cultural backgrounds, my father was absorbed and brought into and loved in my mum's family and community. And, you know, they didn't sit me down when I was a child and say, you're Wiradjuri, you're this, you're that. They were there, though, to pick up the pieces when I suffered racism and explained to me, I was five, mum said I was brown because I'd been kissed by the sun. But when I was old enough to understand, it was always about them saying be strong and proud of who you are and always backed me up with whatever I needed to do and they both had incredibly strong work ethics coming from poor families and very strong family values and those strong family values are very much Wiradjuri values as well so I'd have to say that they created the person that I am today. Now, you mentioned earlier that you didn't start out thinking you'd become a writer, but of course you have and a very prolific one. Along the way, who have been your influences or what have been your influences as a writer? I love this question and it's really interesting because when I'm at festivals, I'm on panels with people that rattle off all these names of people I've never heard of, international writers who I'm sure are brilliant, and I always come back to the same people. It's the late Ujuru Nunuckle. Your listeners will will know that she was Kath Walker until she changed her name in 1988 as a protest against the bicentenary, and she also wrote the first or published the first collection of poetry by an Aboriginal person in 1964 with We Are Going. And in that collection are a number of poems that still speak to me, including the Charter for Aboriginal 
rights, which is as relevant today as it was back then in the call for a charter. The late Aunty Ruby Langford Guinneby, I spent a lot of time with her, Bunjalung, very strong Bunjalung woman who published her first book at the age of 50, Don't Take Your Love to Town, came out in 1988, the same year as Sally Morgan's My Place, though both received in very different ways. Both those women pushed the boundaries in terms of publishing in this country at a time where Aboriginal women weren't seen, we didn't have voices like we have today. And Aunty Ruby said to her editor at the time, do not gubberize my text. And what she meant was do not sanitize my voice. I want my stories told my way. And so they both influenced me greatly. I got to meet Ujuru as well, the late Ujuru as well. And then in a contemporary times, when people say to me, like, what do you recommend? I still go back to books that were published quite a while ago. I go back to Melissa Lukashenko's entire body of work. And although she won the Miles Franklin for too much lip, I still talk about her novel Too Flash, which is a coming of age story for young girls that I read at 38 and wished I had at 15. You know, Alexis Wright's body of work. I always remember also Rosie Scott, the late Rosie Scott, for her, not only her novels, but her nonfiction, because she was a mentor of mine. So she influenced me greatly as well. Your new book is stunning. I have to say I've read it twice and I think it's, you know, it's really you at the height of your storytelling powers. Billa Yara Dangalangdere is a fascinating story that's steeped in history. What drew you to the story? Yeah, so the story, interesting. So in 2017, it was the 165th anniversary of the Great Flood of Gundagai, which is known as one of Australia's largest, most devastating natural disasters, most definitely the largest devastating flood at a time when a third of the town drowned over three days, which is quite extraordinary. And the town was about 250 population. And when I learned this story and the story of Yadi and Jackie Jackie, who were two Wiradjuri men who went out on canoes uh, with Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, but Yari and Jackie Jackie both saved lives during those, those three days of raging torrential rains and floods and so forth. And when I learnt this story, I thought to myself, how is it that all Australians do not know this story? This is something the world should know. And literally six months later, I started going to Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga and learning my Wiradjuri language with Uncle Stan Grant and all of his protégés. And then I realised that, you know, I needed to write something about the flood because these heroes needed to be in our nation's literary landscape and it, then every lesson I had and every story I learned and every time I went out on country in the floodplains of Wagga Wagga or, or I stood in the river, the Murrumbidgee, Murrumbidgee Billa, I got ideas and I, I started to imagine what it must have been like for my ancestors living on that land through every season and I also wanted at the same time, to tell a story about what it was like for women in particular, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal women living on the land in Wiradjuri country in the mid-1800s. One of the things that comes through really strongly in your book is that sense of landscape. And when you listen to how you sort of almost sung that up by standing there, it's, it's really easy to understand why it's so strong in the book. What other research did you undertake to pull it together? I went back to Wagga, I guess over two years. I was in Wagga eight or nine times 
I went to Gundagai a number of times as well. I spent time in the Gundagai Library, the museum. I walked the streets of Gundagai and along the river, which is dry in many parts. There's a lot of monuments to our heroes now. And I spent time in the museum there and reading a whole lot of material that had been documented around the flood in particular in newspaper articles and so forth. I had Miriam Crane, who manages the Kudamundra Gundagai tourism office there, read drafts. She is the font of knowledge in terms of history there. And I had Ani Sony Piper, who's like our matriarch and Brungle, read the material around Brungle and so forth as well. I spent time in Wagga Library, who were just extraordinary in terms of offering assistance for, you know, material that's already been documented. I, through my language lessons, we spent a lot of the class, you know, lessons happen in the classroom, but they happen, you know, by the river, they happen down in the floodplains. We go and look at sites, we look, look at scar trees. So I heard stories of significant places. Not everything ends up in the novel because not everything's for the public domain, as, as you would know. But to be honest with you, I could not have written that book if I was not down there, if I was not sitting in yarning circles or in sitting just with my, you know, galung with all the other Wiradjuri women who forced me to, you know, answer questions in language, use the dictionary in the app when I have to. In my class, I'm probably at the lowest rung of understanding, the slowest learner. But, I, you know, I spoke to a gentleman, Ian Horsley, who his great-great-grandfather was saved by Yari in the flood. So, I, you know, I actually spoke to direct descendants of people there and I had drafts read by my peers as well, Rebecca Connolly and Letitia Harris and Arnie Elaine Lomas. And so I feel very fortunate because I had access to a whole lot of knowledge and wisdom and land that I could stand on. And when you fly into Wiradjuri country, I always took photos. So I had an idea of what it looked like from the sky. I had, you know, driving across the landscape, I could see right rolling hills. I could see that the land was very similar in Wagga to Gundagai so that when Wagadine arrives, she can know that she's still on Wiradjuri country. In all that research you undertook, what surprised you the most? Oh dear, what surprised me the most? I think maybe coming to understand the land better myself and understand my story and where I fit in. And I think for me, this was not something I set out to do, but I think learning more about myself as a Wiradjuri woman was probably uh, what surprised me most because I didn't go there searching for that. I've always known who I am. I've always been strong in identity. But I think, you know, I grew up off country. I grew up in Sydney, you know, have great affection for Bidjigal land and Gadigal land. Uh, Now I live on Yagara country in South Brisbane. But I think what surprised me most was how I was impacted emotionally and spiritually by everything I read and everything I saw and everything I come to understand about the history of that area and the resilience of our people. You know, I know we're resilient. You know, I learned so much just reading growing up Aboriginal in Australia and all the submissions that came into that and and it's almost devastating to say that we have to become resilient at a very young age but I think I saw a different level of that, you know, and that's how I created such amazing characters like Wagadine and, and her mother, Yarramilin. Yeah, actually, I have to say the word resilience came to mind a lot when I was reading the book. And it sometimes can feel a little overused, but I just feel like the story really explains by showing how people respond to when the worst things happen to them, that that's actually such a strong trait. 
And I was actually going to ask you, Wagadine to me feels like a new heroine of literature. And I was wondering how you created her. That's really interesting, Larissa, because, you know, well, you would know this as a writer. You don't sit down saying, like, I'm going to create this character and she's going to be a heroine. Who Wagadine is to me is that she is a composite of all the women that I know, not just Wiradjuri women, but Aboriginal women who have faced adversity and remained dignified. You know, she's a composite of all the resilient, the intelligent, hardworking, spiritual and strong, particularly Wiradjuri women that I not only know today but have known in the past. And I think she embodies all the values that I was raised to have and all the values, the Wiradjuri values that we talk about when I'm down there with, you know, my class and with my gun and my family and so forth. The thing too that I think is remarkable, we hear how much research has gone into this, you know, how much you really delved into these moments of history. And yet I think it's a remarkable credit that when you're reading the book, the history's there, but you don't get bogged down in it. Sometimes when you're reading a book that's based in history, the author can't help but give you so many details. Your book is so character-driven, especially if you count the landscape as a character, which I do. I feel like it's really alive. How do you ensure that balance? How do you make sure that the book remains character-led and you don't get distracted by all of these wonderful bits of history that you're learning? Well, thank you for that observation. It's so funny because you see things that I hadn't thought about before. So we're thinking about that now. I think, well, there's probably more characters in this novel than there's been in any of my novels previously. There's a number of different points of view. So we can see also, which hasn't happened before. So we can see life on the landscape. And I think you're correct. The landscape is a character as well, because it has a life of its own and a purpose and a role of its own and the river as well. I think what I try to do with all my novels is to have characters that appear so authentic, whether they're humanitarians or villains, whether they were Adri or whether they're, you know, white fellas, I want to have characters that are so authentic that readers will connect with them to either their values or to some of their behaviours, to their opinions, to some of their dialogue. And so I try to give characters distinct personalities. And I think, you know, for this novel, you can't always have, and I learnt this through writing Paris Dreaming because I had everybody up in arms about the French banning the burqa and my editor at the time said, you can't have everybody thinking the same way, Anita, because, you know, obviously I wanted the world to think like me. And she said, because the world's not like that. And she's absolutely right. So then when you can have the character like James Bradley or David Bradley or someone who actually behaves in an appalling way, that way you can have the characters say and do all the things that Anita Heiss wouldn't say or do or Larissa Brent wouldn't say or do or we hope, you know, the men in our lives wouldn't say or do. But it's important to actually cover, cover off all those different traits that we see and all those different voices that we see in society because if we're talking about truth-telling, which this novel is aiming to do, then the truth is people did behave appallingly as well on, you know, every country, well, everywhere around the country during that time. So basically I'm trying to create characters that people can see as absolutely authentic. Language, Wiradjuri language and cultural practice are really strong in the book. They feel to me almost like a heartbeat through it. 
How has it mirrored your own process of more deeply connecting to your Wiradjuri heritage? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I didn't start learning, you know, I'd been, you know, down in Wiradjuri country many, 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 many times throughout my life. But I think it wasn't until, and I mentioned this before, without learning language in the classroom with fluent speakers and other students supporting me, forcing me to speak language, like you walk in the morning and Uncle Stan Grant says, you know, don't even bother saying good morning. You've got to say you're rung and you've got to wave your arm because it's a whole body motion. And you like it's embarrassing when you're first learning because you, you don't want to say it wrong. So, but without being there and without understanding, learning how that language was recorded, how it came about and the work that was done by him, Dr. John Rudder, there's zero way that I could have written that book. I wouldn't have attempted it. I wouldn't have had the ideas. Uh, you know, standing in the in the river, feeling the water on my flesh, having my feet on the floor of the river, feeling the pull of the current, connecting, you know, connecting with myself and, and my spirit and being able to do that, that enabled me to write from my heart and write honestly, you know, from my experiences. And I was always conscious that being able to write what I felt through my Wiradjuri lens, so I, I, everything I saw, I thought it was my Wiradjuri way of thinking and language, I always saw it as an act of sovereignty. And there's an incredible power in that. And I feel like there's many moments in that novel where Wagadine is doing things that I imagine that I I would do, that I would have done. And I think at moments her and I are one and the same. What are you hoping that your readers will take away from this book? Because there are a lot of themes in there. I think whether I'm writing historical fiction for young people, like The Diary of Mary Talents or Our Race of Reconciliation or writing for older people, I do it because I believe that when we understand our past, we better understand our present. And I think Australia is still coming to terms with the realities of Aboriginal experiences throughout this country, throughout history, and how that plays out for us today. The way that we grieve for being off country, the issues around having pride and identity when you may not know where your family is from because you were forced off traditional lands or you were removed and disconnected through acts of policies of protection and acts of assimilation, policy of assimilation, or you may be the product of an act of violence through in history at the hands of white settlers. And I think that's important for people to understand that, you know, Aboriginal people have diverse histories, some of them incredibly painful, I hope that readers take away a greater respect for the role our people have played in working the land, a greater understanding of what country means to us. And although we've been forced to become resilient over decades of facing adversity, that we are still incredibly proud. I hope that the story might contribute to the conversation around the lack of statues that recognise our warriors and leaders. And when I say our warriors, I mean Yari and Jackie Jackie are Australian heroes. Yes, they were Wiradjuri, but they saved Australian lives. They should not just be thought of as, you know, heroes of Aboriginal people. They should be heroes of all Australians. And we look at the enormous number of statues that celebrate, you know, colonisers and colonial events that don't tell the full story uh, and don't necessarily include First Nations peoples and our role in the shared history of this country. So I'm happy to be honest, Larissa. My goal with any, any, you know, not for want of a better word, lesson is that people walk away having learned one thing, you know, just one thing that they didn't know when they started the book. This book does feel like a form of truth-telling. How important is that process to you? 
Well, I think one of the things I've learned, I learned back at uni was that, you know, truth and history is completely subjective and that my truth is different to the next person's and the colonizer's truth is different to the colonized people's truths, which is why I try to write our version or some version of our history and our or my version of what life is like for many of us today. Um, instead of readers always having to see us through an observer's gaze, there's a quote by an Indian author, said guru i hope i've pronounced that correctly and it's truth is not for comfort it's for liberation for me i think truth telling is a form of liberation it's empowering liberating not only for us but for those who are hearing the truth and wanting the truth so for me it's about liberating readers and giving them capacity to be free to know the full story The book is set in the 1850s and really shows through the storytelling the relationship between the colonizer and the First Nations people. And it's really easy to draw lines between the period that you're looking at in the book and what's happening to the characters and the contemporary issues facing First Nations people today. What are your thoughts on a treaty and the extent to which it might shift this relationship? Okay, well, I'm going to start with the fact that, in case your listeners don't know, that Kevin Gilbert wrote a draft treaty back in 1987. So the contemporary conversation has been happening for decades. Obviously, more recently, we've had the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which called for a First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution and a, a Makarata Commission, which would, uh, you, know, you know, evolve a process of, you know, making treaties, resolving conflict and so forth. And now I wasn't at the dialogues that led to the Uluru Statement. And I know there are many people who do not agree with the process, but for my part, I trust those with the legal expertise that they know what they're doing and I and I support the statement and a treaty and its requests. And I think my novel highlights that some of the conversations we're having today around rights to land, around rights to freedom, around rights to have a say in our affairs, around sovereignty and so forth, those conversations have been happening for a long time. So I hope that readers then come to understand that we are also exhausted by these conversations. But clearly, if we look at these conversations that have been happening since in the novel set in the 1850s and they're happening now, that we're not giving up. One of the key relationships in the book is between Wagadine and Louisa, and through that storyline, we see all of the complexities of the relationships between Aboriginal women and white women in that colonial context, and a lot of that taking place in the domestic sphere. What reflections do you have on that relationship? Hmm. I think I'm a lot like Wagadine, and, and, and possibly you are too, and other Aboriginal women listening to the show in that I've had my fair share of Louises in my life and they are well-meaning non-Aboriginal women who have genuine affection and respect for me as their friend, as Louisa had for Wagadine, you know, respect as a confidant or an employee who claim to be on our side, as Louisa did with Wagadine and wanting to work for rights, but, you know, rights for Aboriginal people. And in terms of the changes that need to be made in society back then and today, but when push come to shove, their actions do not reflect their intentions or their lip service. And then when you have no further use to them, then they quietly fade away from your world. And sometimes, not always, more often than not, there's this what's in it for me in terms of the friendships they seek. So Louisa genuinely loved and cared for Wagadine. I have no doubt about that. And I, I wrote Louisa. I know that she cared and loved Wagadine, but she essentially denied her her freedom. 
which she had the power to give her because in the end it was still about what Louisa wanted for herself, her own needs and happiness that drove her to turn a blind eye to the fact that she was denying Wagadine her freedom. I just think this book is going to start so many conversations. You've used your voice for a range of important issues, and one that is obviously very close to your heart is literacy. Tell us about your work in that sphere and why this has been such a focus for you. It's interesting because I'm a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. I've been an ambassador with them, I think, since about 2008, which scares me because that means it's a long time ago when we're all getting older. Well, you must have been 12. I was an embryo. <laughs> and, um, and I guess my role is really about raising awareness and funding for the ILF, which is completely free of government funding, which means it has also complete sovereignty to just do what communities ask for in terms of community-based literacy programs and projects and books in language and so forth and, you know, book supply. And um, I guess what I'm trying to do in my role is to not only encourage a love of reading and writing with our young people, but to help them craft their own stories, inspire them to read more, but also, and it's not rocket science, our people need to see ourselves on the, themselves on the page. So I think moving forward though, I mean, we've been going for a long time now, I would hope in the years to come that the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is not necessary and that perhaps it just becomes a publishing arm because our people have adequate resources and the, the federal government actually puts up the coin for what should be happening anyway because these students in remote communities are Australian citizens and should be resourced like every other Australian student you know, around the country. My next question to you was, what's your advice for somebody out there who's wondering whether they can write a book or not? Okay. Well, if you're listening out there in Radio Land tonight, the first thing I'd say is read widely in whatever the genre is you want to write in, whether it's a kid's book or a memoir or sci-fi, whatever genre it is that you want to write in, you need to read really widely in that genre to see how stories unfold on the page in that genre to help you find your voice for the story you want to tell. I would suggest to you the first thing you do is you write a synopsis. I learned this late in life, but it's changed my capacity to write. So it's write a 1,000 words, pull it back to 300 words, then 25 words for your lift pitch. You need to know what the story is before you even try writing it. So write a synopsis, and trust me, it will make it that much easier. I'm a plotter, so I'm going to suggest that you map your story out like an essay plan for the entire book. And if you already think this is too much work, then you don't have it in you to write a book because this is what it takes. Then to go and do your research, make a list of all the people you might need to interview, any newspapers you might need to access, where you may need to visit, make a list of all the things you're going to need to do to get all the information to write your story. And then I'm going to say, sit down, write, 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 set yourself a goal every day. It might be a thousand words a day. Maybe it's 500 words a day. Give yourself the privilege, the pleasure, the right to find time to do the writing, to find yourself a nice place to do it. I like going to a library to do it and write. And then before you send your book off to anybody, get a structural edit done on it. Don't give it to your best friend or your boyfriend or your mother to read unless they're an editor because they all love you and they're going to tell you it's fantastic. But what you need is you need the eyes of somebody who knows how to read for publication if you want your book to get published. 
Well, a masterclass on writing a book from Anita Heiss. Finally tonight, what's next for Anita Heiss? Taking all of August off to sleep. No, I'm working on Titters, the play, so we're adapting the novel that was came out in 2014 through Simon & Schuster and that's now being produced by Le Bois Theatre here in Brisbane and hopefully we'll see that live in March of next year. So I've written a fairly good draft of that. Coming out through Magabala Books um, next year will be Growing Up Wiradjuri, which I've done with about a dozen elders of my elders in, in Wagga Wagga. I started as a community development project out of my language course and very excited about that. I've done a draft novel for middle grades around in working title, Koori Princess for a young girl who thinks she's a Koori Princess. And that'll come out through Magabala Books um, next year. And a new edition of Am I Black Enough for You? Just working on the edit for that, that through Penguin Random House will come out in 2022. And toying with the idea of doing a kid's picture book of The Great Flood as a, a spin-off from Billy Yadadangalandre. Well, you have just left us all feeling like we're underachievers there, Anita. But it's also yeah. good to know there'll be more books coming out and we'll have you back on speaking out to talk about them. But thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you so much, Larissa. Anita Heiss is an award-winning novelist and social justice advocate. Her new book, Billa Yara Dangalangdere, is published by Simon & Schuster and you can follow Anita and her writing on her website, www.anitaheiss.com. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.